everything comes down to love Then just what am I afraid of When I call out your name Something inside awakes in my soul How quickly I forget I'm yours I'm not my own I've been carried by you all my life Everything rides on What's up, Transit Church? Morning, morning, morning. morning. Good to see everybody. Uh, belated happy Independence Day to all of you. Hope that you're having a, a fun and safe a holiday weekend. Uh, if you're joining us by live stream, we say welcome. If I haven't not met you yet, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm actually the lead pastor here at the Transit Church. Uh, we're glad to have you all with us. And uh, check it out. We got some people in the room, which is as a pastor having to preach, y'all just don't know. Like, that's just to have a couple people in the room, like physical presence is, uh, is a world of help. So glad that you all are here and glad that you all are there. We've been in a series in First Peter. We just started. We're uh, three weeks in. And so we're going to uh, glean from God's word in the New Testament book of First Peter this morning. Uh, if you are here, grab your Bibles. If you're on the, the web with us, grab your Bibles as well. And of course, you can cheat by looking at the words on the screen. We're looking at three verses this morning. Verses 10 through 12 of chapter 1, we're going to do, as we uh, always do, read these out loud together. So I'm going to ask you to join me in reading chapter 1, verse 10 through 12 of 1 Peter. Let's read together. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have been now announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's word. Let's pray. What we pray, uh, and before we pray, we even pause, like to gather our, our senses about us. It's a holiday weekend, and and uh, if you're like me, then uh, our minds are in other places. Even as we come to church, our minds are thinking about other things. And so, uh, Lord, as we give ourselves to worship and your word this morning, God, I pray that you would bless us with uh, an unhurried moment that, God, we would um, welcome the praises of God to come out of our lips, to be expressed in this place and wherever we find ourselves this morning. God, that you would bless us with an unhurried worship this morning. We wouldn't be in a hurry to, to check the block, to, to say, hey, I got it in, to let this be a religious moment. But in God, we would have great expectation that we're going to meet with you this morning, that you're going to speak to us through your word. God, that we're going to uh, see Jesus and that you're going to continue this process of change uh, in us so that we live it out on the outside. So that's our prayer this morning as we, 
as we open your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, three weeks into this uh, series in 1 Peter. Um, when Peter writes this letter, he is in his, uh, I mean, probably living in, in Rome around 62 to 65 AD. Peter is in the latter years of his life. He's writing, having walked with Jesus almost every day for about the three years of Jesus' public ministry. He's writing from his life of both wisdom and conviction. I think notably, Peter is writing from the experience of going through trials and suffering, the very trials and suffering that he'll talk about in this letter. Peter's writing to a group of people, uh, Christians, Gentile Christians, that he calls uh, the elect exiles of the dispersion. These are Gentile Christians, churches that are scattered throughout uh, all of Asia Minor, which is today modern Turkey. These are people who are social exiles. They've been marginalized and made to be cultural outsiders. Some commentators would say they've been not just excluded, but they have been hated and killed for following Jesus. Can you imagine that? That, like, that's, that's one of the that's one of the things I think that, we, that as American Christians, that's farthest from what we think about our Christianity, that we could be hated and killed for our faith, just for following Jesus. But that's what these Christians were likely experiencing. And so given that reality, Peter's exhortation for them as they live a life on mission together for Jesus is for them not to compromise their faith by blending in too much with the culture, but also don't, 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 don't hide from the culture. Don't, don't, don't go into hiding, creating uh, their own subgroup, retreating from the culture, but rather to embrace the hard life of being sojourners in a world that was not particularly their home. And so as we come to verses 10 through 12, this short section continues Peter's train of thought from, from the previous verses that we looked at last week. And what Peter does in the verses prior is he's stating really the mega theme of, of Scripture. And we see this starting in verse 3. Here's what Peter says. In his great mercy, God himself has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an imperishable inheritance. Last week we talked about how Peter is giving us, uh, he's talking about our gospel privileges, the privileges that we all share as, as believers, as followers of Jesus. And then he is this beautiful description of, of what, that, what that faith looks like. He says we're born again. There's been some, there's something that's happened that really has transformed our whole lives. And here's what it looks like. It looks like a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus to an imperishable inheritance. Like God has given it to us. He's going to preserve it for us and us for it. Then he, he finishes this off by, by closing out in verse 9. He says, the outcome or the goal of our faith is the very salvation of our souls. And it's on this idea of salvation that Peter decides to linger. He just pauses right there. He actually goes on a kind of a diatribe, and he uh, explains for us uh, what that salvation looks like a little bit more clearly. Uh, more specifically, he's going to talk about the role that Scripture plays in our salvation. And what we find in verses 10 through 12 really are several things that Peter highlights for us in regards to the character of Scripture. And the first thing that Peter says is that the theme of Scripture is salvation. The theme of Scripture is salvation. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, Peter writes, concerning this salvation, the prophets have prophesied. In other words, the prophets have spoken, right? And we are able to know what they spoke because it was encapsulated in writing. 
Uh, the, the focus there, though, is, is, is the word salvation. When I think of salvation, I, it simply means deliverance. I like to, this is, the, this is the picture that I get in my mind in regards to salvation. I, like, I, I used to swim growing up, but I didn't swim that well. I, I basically, what I was doing when I was swimming was playing in the water, right? My neighbor had a pool. We would go to their pool, and one day I actually jumped off the deep end, the 10-foot end, and I had to get rescued by my, by my dad. And so salvation really is like us being rescued. It's like us, for whatever reason, uh, having been capsized, or you just find yourself out in the middle of some body of water. You can't swim. And unless someone comes and takes hold of you, uh, rescues you, delivers you from, from that, that body of water, you are headed for a fitful death. death. That's, that's what salvation is. And so salvation in the Bible really runs the, the extremes, the gamut of this sense of, of physical rescue from danger or crises or evil. And we see a lot of that in the Old Testament. God comes, and with the nation of Israel, he rescues them from their enemies, but in the New Testament, we see this idea of spiritual rescue, resulting in the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. And we get that because of our faith in Jesus. But here particularly is how Peter describes salvation. Look at the words that he uses. He says, it's a new birth. We go back to verse 3, and that's what Peter says. Salvation is new birth. And, and so the Holy Spirit gives uh, the gospel writer Peter this uh, this picture of salvation and the words, I mean, he can't, it's, it's just so hard to describe that he goes back to the picture of a baby coming out of the womb and being born. That's how radical what God is doing inside of you is. It's like a new birth, not being, not being reborn from a womb, but reborn in a sense of God comes in from the inside out by the spirit. He makes you new and that new transforms not just your insides, but how you live on the outside. He goes on to say that salvation is a gift to be received. You know, we don't just wake up and decide, you know what, I'm going to be saved today. I know we think that's how we get saved. That's not really how it happens. God is the initiator. That's why it's a gift to be received in the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel. He will say that when we get to verse 12. What does that mean? It means that God uh, acts upon you some way that by the Holy Spirit, he would open you up to even receive his words and to uh, begin to have faith that what the Bible talks about in regards to Jesus is true. You hear the gospel articulated and the two combine. The Holy Spirit's work in you, sometimes unknown, and then the word that has the power in it to save. And when those two collide, that's new birth. That's you being saved. He'll go on to say that, to describe this, uh, this salvation as as. Uh, a living hope, that's the result of it, verse 3, and an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading is kept, for he- kept in heaven for you, which means if, if God brings you to faith, there's an inheritance to be gained. It's not money or gold. It's eternal life with him and Jesus forever, right? And, and God is keeping that inheritance for you, and he's keeping you for it, and he's not going to fail. That's what he's saying. So for Peter, salvation is, is past. It's it's present, it's right now, but it's also future. Salvation is the benefits that believers have found, do find, and will find because of their faith in the person and the work of Jesus. Now, now here's here's the deal. The reason why Peter is highlighting salvation to these Christians is to give them the perspective in the midst of their suffering. 
Like he wants them to be able to endure. And so he wants, here's, here's, where, here's the, the behind the scenes look as to why you're going through these, these sufferings. And so he gives them a foundation for what the scriptures say about their salvation. So the, 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 the culture that Peter lives in and his readers are, are, are living in is really no different than our own. You know, 2,000 two years apart. To say that salvation in Jesus is something that everyone needs is anti-cultural. It was anti-cultural then. It's actually offensive today in our day. We make the mistake of saying that we live in a, in a Christian nation, and of course, that's, we can argue about that. There are some artifacts of Christianity in our founding documents. We, of course, rehearse those and dig those up during the 4th of July and all that. Uh, many would say that parts of the Declaration uh, and uh, Federalist Papers, all that stuff, have elements of Genesis 127 that we're created in God's image, and that's, that, that is uh, the, the foundation of our, of our worth and of our value. But America is really pluralistic. It, it began pluralistic, and it is pluralistic today. And so in a pluralistic, pluralistic society like ours, it's not religious conviction, it's religious tolerance that dominates the public debate. Would you agree? You don't have to agree. I'm, I'm the one preaching. All right. Society believes that religious conviction should be relegated to the private sphere of life, where you can believe whatever you want to believe as long as what you believe doesn't interfere with what I believe. And that's the America we live in, right? I keep saying right. Y'all don't have to agree. Don't, don't, don't necessarily agree with me. Just come, I'm talking. Acceptable religion is one that believes all faiths lead to the same God and to heaven. That's the America that we live in. So when it comes to salvation, Peter says we should take our cues from the angels, not from culture, right? Because culture will lead us astray. Take our cues from the angels, and I'm going to tease this out, and we're going to come back to it. Verse 12, here's what he says. He says, the angels long to look into salvation. Like they're standing on the outside, peering in like, man, if I could have me some of that. That's what the angels are doing. The angels are mesmerized by this idea of salvation. They're peering in, and they have been for the, the totality of their existence. The, the, the word reads like it's a, it's a present, active, ongoing thing that the angels have doing since Jesus was incarnated, and probably even back to the, 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 the days of creation and God in Genesis 3 um, coming up with this plan of redemption, the way he would uh, restore all that, that man because of our sin has, has, just, has torn down. And so these angels, uh, they're peering in to this idea of salvation. They continue to look at the gospel, the good news of God's salvation that we have in Jesus. They're fixated on the beauty of it. Think about you being at a fire pit. Perhaps you had a fire pit. Too hot, too hot for fire pit yesterday, wasn't it? But some of y'all probably did, right, just because of the ambiance of it. There's something about fire, pyrotechnics, and stuff that just attracts us, right? We're not just celebrating the pomp and the circumstance of the moment in the 4th of July. We just like fire and bombs and all that stuff, don't we? It's just part of being American. And so you're at a fire pit. You ever caught yourself just like there's people around, and you're just like staring at the fire, and you're just like seeing the embers pop, and you're like, it's like beautiful. And you're like, you're like captivated. You're like a fly, like uh, one of those moths. That, that find themselves being drawn to that kind of stuff. That's the kind of fixation that the angels are having or the fireworks on the 4th of July and the, the, the beautiful display of it all. It captivates, us. it captivates us. And that's the kind of attention, that's the kind of fixation that Peter is describing regarding 
the angels. And he's exhorting us to have the same sentiment as, as well over the goodness of God's salvation. Peter says we should take a cue from the angels to note how great and gracious and benevolent and merciful and beautiful is the salvation that God gives us and offers us in Jesus. And so let me ask you a question, Transit Church. What captivates you? What are you looking into? If you had to fixate on anything, what would that fixation be about? What is grabbing your attention? I mean, there's all kind of things in our lives that grab our attention, doesn't it? There's all kind of things that we're fixated on, that we're even obsessed with. Like, we're, we're obsessed with our TVs. All of our TVs probably have, all of our homes have a TV in one or two or three or maybe all the rooms, right? So sometimes we, we are obsessed with, with turning on our TV and looking at it. Uh, if you're like me, you're obsessed with the news. Like, I'm always, like, pulling my phone out, checking, like, what's happened next? What's happened next? As if the world is turning that fast, which it is. But the, the unfortunate thing is we can know, like, in a split second what's going on around the whole world as if we were there. Parents, some of you are fixated on your kids, and your life is so revolved around your kids. If your kids are doing good, life is good. But if your kids are suffering or just anything's going on wrong with them, then your life is, is like that too. We're fixated on our kids sometimes. And of course, if I had my phone with me, I mean, that's the thing that's got all of us obsessed, right? That thing that we can do anything with. We can just touch the other side of the world at, a, at a, like a tap. Our phones, we're obsessed with them. Maybe some of you are going through hard times right now, and it's the hard times that you are experiencing that you're fixated on, and you can't, you can't even turn your eyes to the left or the right away from it because it has you, it has you in its, in its grip. Peter says we need to be fixated on God's power to save, not on our own power to save ourselves or to get ourselves out of trouble or to control those things that are around us or those things that seemingly have power over us. God is the only one that can save. And that's what the scriptures point out. Here's the second thing that Peter pauses and takes his time to, to point out about scripture. The theme of scripture is grace. Verse 10 again, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. I like how the NIV translation takes this phrase about grace and it translated a little bit differently. It says, the grace that was to come to you. That's the amazing, beautiful, miraculous thing about the grace that God gives to us. It comes to us, right? We don't have to go get it. It comes to us. The grace of the gospel comes to us. We're actually possessors of that grace. Paul captured this perfectly in Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not, of, not the result of works so that you may boast in it. If, if you're reading this verse right, you know that when it comes to salvation, you really don't have any part in it. You don't. You don't bring anything to the table. You can do nothing to save yourself. You're, you're like that person in the middle of an ocean. You can't swim. There are no uh, artifacts from the boat that capsized. There's no logs out there that you can hold on to. It's like you in the ocean, and if you can't swim, you, like you, you need to be rescued. You need to be delivered. right? And that's what grace, grace is. In fact, the Bible tells us we don't even deserve this grace. And that's why he says it's a gift. God has gifted us to it, and it's not as if we can give him something back that's going to equate it. 
And that, God, that God, God's gift to us is his actual son. That's what John 3.16 is about. For God so loved the world that what did he give? He gave his only son. Not only do we experience the results of grace, but we become the recipients of grace. Grace is typically defined as unmerited favor. Favor that you can't do anything to get and you don't even deserve it. That you and I who believe in Jesus live in this perpetual state of acceptance from God based on nothing that we've done. That's what a merited grace is. But I think we could probably go a little bit further. It's not just a merited favor in that God gives us something that we don't deserve. It's also the case that God doesn't give us the things that we do deserve. Here's how Paul goes on in, in Romans Chapter 6, he says, verse 23, for the wages of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so really we see grace in both of these, these letters that Paul is writing to New Testament Christians to exhort them about their salvation. Grace is both. It's, it's you and I deserve death. The result of that sin is that we should be condemned and separated forever from God in a Christless eternity called, called hell. That's what we deserve. But the other side of that is that's what makes grace all the more incredible, isn't it? That he would give us that. You and I have been rescued from impending death, separation and condemnation from God in Christ Jesus. We've not only been given a gift in Jesus, we've been saved through Jesus from what we rightfully deserve. And it's not as if God turns a blind eye. To the things that we do. Here's what Romans 1 says. Romans 1 says that you and me, we exchange the truth of who God is for a lie and choose selectively to worship created things instead of the creator himself. That's rebellion against God. That's what the Bible says about me and you. And God is not turning a blind eye to those things. The Bible tells us in other places that God is just. Right. And he's going to be just in how he measures out the punishment that's due because of sin in his world. But here's the thing that God God does. He doesn't necessarily turn to us and penalize us for our sin. If you're in Christ Jesus, what does he do? He turns to his son and his son on the cross stretches his arms and he allows people like you and me to pin him there. And he dies in our place for our sin. And that's incredible news for people like you and me, because it means that we're forgiven and not condemned. And so in Peter's case, like the angels, this is what we're exhorted to gaze into, to have this long-standing view of, to not fixate on the news or TV or even our kids or our problems, but to fixate on the beautiful grace that God gives us and to long for that. Peter would have us wake up every morning thinking, man, yes, Another day that I get to experience the grace of God, and that grace is mine, right? He's given it to me. It's ours for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Someone once said this. They said, the reality of grace is that when you get grace, grace gets you. When you get grace, grace gets you. In other words, God captivates us by his gracious love to us. And at some, some point, maybe not initially, but as God continues to pursue us, we're just drawn to it and it like, like gets all over us. It changes you. Uh, I've talked about this before. Like, you know, I'm a, I'm a Disney fan. We got Disney Plus, right? And so, I'm, you know, four or five years ago, probably more, it was when um, our daughter was still in elementary school. It, the, the new Cinderella came out, the one with Kate Blanchett 
And uh, my favorite part of that movie is, at the, is that, like, it's a good rendition of Cinderella. It's like thousands of renditions of Cinderella. Uh, the one, in, in this particular case, the end part is, is a spiritual experience. And so the, the prince has already come to the, the house. He's brought the glass slipper. He's put it on Cinderella's foot, and it's the right foot, and they're all celebrating and kissing, and, you know, they're going to leave the house, and, and it's all, all going to end happily ever after. It's one of those stories. But before they get to the happily ever after part, the, the evil stepmother, Kate Blanchett, comes down the steps, and I don't know if this was supposed to happen, but Cinderella and the prince are headed out, and then they pause as they see the stepmother, and, and Cinderella turns and in the most gracious, benevolent, merciful manner, she says to her stepmother, I forgive you. It's like, man, it's just a movie. But it was, I mean, it was just the right moment, right? And the stepmother was so taken back by that. She was so surprised by it that she clenched her chest like I'm clenching mine. And she sat down on the step because she knew that she didn't deserve what was happening between her and Cinderella. And it's the same thing. We're saved by grace, but grace has the propensity to change us. Grace will change you. That's why Peter says to the prophets that the prophets who prophesied about the grace, that was to be yours. Here's the thing. If it's yours, it can change everything. And so like, like that movie Cinderella, You'll be able to persevere through anything, rejection, suffering. You'll be able to love those who even hate you, forgive those who don't deserve it. You'll be able to love the unlovable. You'll have a power and a love for other people of, you know, of all kinds. It'll change the way you live. Perhaps it'll even change your relationships. And so it's grace that led Jesus to suffer on the cross. And that's where Peter goes next. The content of Scripture is, is suffering. Then glory. Verse 10 again. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so if you're reading your Bible right, then you know all Scripture is pointing to Jesus, beginning to end. Can I read every single verse, like every and, every period, all that, and see Jesus in it? Perhaps not. But there, every pericope, every book of the Bible has its, has its origin and its destination in revealing who Jesus is or it's being fulfilled by who Jesus came to be, the Son of God. And so what Peter's saying to us is that the Old Testament prophets were, were always looking for the day when the Messiah would come, when he would make his place on the earth. Both the Old Testament prophets and later the New Testament uh, apostles and the other writers of Scripture were carried along by the Holy Spirit to point us to Jesus. Notably, the, point, the, thing, the thing that they point to are the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. And we see that all the way through the Bible. There's, there's a lot of uh, examples I could give you. I'm going to center on one because I think this is probably the most poignant. Luke 24, if you remember that, this is post-crucifixion. This is post-resurrection. There's two disciples. They're walking on the road to Emmaus. Okay, and they're distraught. They're discouraged. They've heard that Jesus has been crucified. They don't know about the resurrection or even if they know about it, they don't know what to do with it. They don't know what it means. And as they're discussing among themselves, um, here's here's basically what 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 happens. Uh, Jesus shows up. 
Okay, Jesus shows up and he starts walking along with them. Their hopes had been in Jesus that he was going to be their Messiah, that he was going to, like all the Jews thought, come in and usher in uh, the resurgence of Israel, to, to defeat the, their, their enemy, the Romans, and take them into some, some new national bliss. But of course, Jesus in that moment comes and he opens the scriptures to help them see all that they should have seen in his coming. Here's what we read in Luke 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, what did he do? He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall, a gnat on his shirt, like a, 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 a honeybee, like just hanging around, hovering by Jesus' mouth so you could hear what he was saying as he's unpacking the scriptures for these men. I mean, this is probably the best Bible study that's ever happened in this moment. Jesus is going from, from most of the prophets, which means from, in, in their Bible days, he's going from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers to Deuteronomy. Then he went to the, uh, to the narrative books, and then he went to uh, the, the wisdom books, and then he went to the, 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 the major and the minor prophets, and he is showing them, pointing out in detail of how it points out to them. And so Jesus goes to Genesis and says, yeah, I, well, well, I mean, you've heard of the, the, the six, seven days of creation, right? Well, I mean, you know I'm the guy that created it, right? And then he goes to Genesis 3 and says, so, so when the, the, the seed of the woman crushes the head of the serpent, like I'm the seed of the woman, and I just crushed him on the cross when I came, became victorious over death, hell, and the grave, and, and Satan. And, and then he goes to the Exodus and says, you know, this, that big thing about Moses, yeah, Moses is pretty cool, I know him, but the, the Exodus wasn't just about Israel being delivered from slavery, that's, that's, that speaks more importantly of a greater exodus, the exodus that I'm going to, to usher in when I deliver you from all those things that oppress you, the sins that hold you down. And on and on and on he would have gone, showing like, like persons like, like David. Like we get fixated on David. We make David our example, right? David is this, this young man who has courage to defeat the, the, the Goliath of our lives. And Jesus says, you know what? David's a good guy. Don't emulate David because I'm a better David. I'm a better David. And, and the Goliath that I've come to slay is the sin that you need to be delivered from. And, and this, this is, it, it all points to me, right? It's, it's all about me. I've been telling you for a long time through the prophets that I would come and die and rise again and I'd rescue you. And guess what? I'm here. I'm here. It's all about me. You guys remember that our Bruce Willis movie? Y'all aren't old enough to remember this. Like 20 years ago, Bruce Willis movie, The Sixth Sense, a few of you, right? Or perhaps a newer movie, uh, Leo DiCaprio's, I think this was Leo, The Inception. All right, those crazy kind of movies. I'm not recommending that you go see that movie. All right, but, you know, it is entertaining, okay? Um, but here's the crazy thing about both of those movies. You get to the end and you realize, oh, my, I think they were dead the whole time. And so when you, when you get to that mo oh, like movie, spoiler alert, right, it's too late. Those movies are too old. You should have seen them already. <laughs> but, but you get to the end of those movies, you're like, oh, man, I want to go back and see, what, like, see it all over again so that I can have a new perspective of what I'm seeing. This is what's going on when you read your book, your, your Bible. You have the opportunity because you know how it ends. We live on the other side, right, of, of the crucifixion and the resurrection, and we know why Jesus came, what he came to do. 
And he came to save us. And so when we go back, we're able to see from Genesis to Revelation who our God is and what he intended to do with new eyes. And so that's the way that we should be reading our Bibles. More importantly, we should be opening our Bibles and praying, like very specific prayers. Y'all know I always pray, Lord, help. Like, I need help all the time in all kind of ways, some specific ways. And God, help me in the ways I don't even know how to ask. But when it comes to your Bible, here are some words to pray. Open my eyes, Lord, to the treasures of Jesus found on these pages, such that every story that I read, I would see it through the lens of a suffering and glorified Jesus. That's what you want to see in your Bibles. But here's the hard word that Peter is alluding to in this text. Suffering now and then glory is not just the trajectory of Jesus' life. That's the trajectory of your life. Suffering now and then glory. And and here's the deal for some of us. That glory, you may not see that glory in this life. And perhaps, I mean, really, you won't. None of us will. Not the glory that God intends for you. One commentator says it like this. He says, sufferings now, glories to follow. Peter wants to encourage Christians who face the first suffering, to look for the second glory, to long for it. He has pointed out our hope to the glory of Christ and to his return. And now he would have us remember that Christ, the Christ of glory is the Christ of the cross. The, subsequence, uh, the sequence of our lives follows the sequence of Christ's life. He suffered first and then entered into the glory. So, we, so must we. So must we. Look down at verse 12. Here's what verse 12 says. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. All right, here we get to the angels. We're told again, uh, told the, the, the sufferings of Christ, the very salvation that we have because of who, God, who Jesus is and what he's done, and the subsequent glories become the great preoccupation and the cause of wonder for the angelic host in heaven, the, the focal point, at least for my eyes, is the word long or longing. That's an important word. It means to peer in from the outside. John's gospel uses that same word post-crucifixion and resurrection in John 20. John is explaining that uh, Jesus has been crucified. He's actually been resurrected. The, a few select women go to the tomb. They find that the tomb is open. Jesus' body is there. All they see are, are loincloths there. They don't understand it. Of course, they meet an angel, and the angel gives them a little bit of uh, revelation as to what has happened. They just don't know what to do with it. So what do they do? They rush back, and they tell the disciples, hey, we met an angel. Like, like it was crazy. Jesus is, he said, Jesus is not dead. He's alive. And so John and Peter rush back to the, the tomb. Uh, John, in John 20, is, is careful to tell us, all right, Peter was fat, so he, and he, he was slow, so I didn't, that was offensive. I'm sorry. All right, Peter was slow, probably stout. Uh, and, he, and, and John beats him back to, the, uh, back to the tomb. And so verse 5, it says, stooping in to look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, and he did not go in. And that's a perfect description of what the angels do in regards to our salvation. In regards to the sufferings and glories of Christ, they're stooping in and they're looking very intently because they want to know it. They want to know, understand it. They want to experience it for themselves because they see us experiencing it, except that's not their task. Jesus didn't, uh, that's not what their, their role is in the history of redemption. They're stooping in and looking in. 
Here's what we know about the angels. They were there at every point in the early, early, earthly ministry of Jesus. One author writes these beautiful words. He says, they've been there to see the unfolding of, of the Father's plan and the fulfilling of the ancient prophetic word. They had been astonished to observe the eternal Son, the Lord and Maker, humble himself and take flesh and be joined to human nature in the womb of the virgin. They announced with wonder and delight the pregnancy of Mary, and then they split the skies in song at the birth of our Savior. They were there ministering to Jesus in his temptations in the, in the wilderness. They marveled as the lawgiver himself learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And then at the climax of his sufferings, at the height of his agonies on the cross, and darkness covered the earth, the angels are silent as the one who knew no sin became sin for us. They held their breaths, as it were, as they heard him cry, it is finished, and then he breathed his last. And when the stone rolled away that first Easter, they were there to witness to the eternal Son made flesh, now risen from the grave, walk alive from the tomb, bringing life and immortality to life. And then when he ascended into glory and the disciples stood there, dumbfounded at the spectacle, what did the angels do? The angels were there rebuking them, reminding them that in the same manner in which Christ had left them, he would return one day. At every point, at every point in the history of redemption, these angels, they bear witness the ministry of Christ. But here's the incredible thing. At no, at no point in these angels' ministry of their own are they the objects of Jesus' ministry. They're just there. They're participants. They're bystanders. They're doing tasks. But Jesus didn't come for the angels. Jesus doesn't... Uh, promise that he's going to do anything special for the angels. There's no accolade waiting for the angels. They're created uh, beings ministering because God has to minister to the, the, the pinnacle of his creation, people like you and me. He didn't come for them. It was not for them that, he, that, that Jesus obeyed the Father. He didn't die for them. He didn't rise again from them. He didn't ascend into heaven and, and now reign for them. It's not for them that Jesus will one day return, although they will accompany him on that great day. And so if it's not for the angels that Jesus has done all these things, who on earth is it for? Like it's for us, the church, right? It's for you. It's for me. He came for you. He bled for you. He rose for you. He reigns for you. He's coming back for you. These angels peer in from the outside, longing, longing to know what we know. What must it be like, they're asking themselves. What must it be like to be the objects of such love and mercy and grace? These are just people, and they mess up all the time. Lord, what is it that you see in them that you would lavish such great grace upon them? They don't know what it's like to, 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 to have sin forgiven. They don't know what it's like to be adopted as God's kids. They don't know what it's like to be the recipients of such great grace. They don't know what it's like to have the spirit of Christ dwell in their hearts by faith, to be sanctified in Christ. They don't know what it's like for us to mess up, but yes, to be, to be the recipients of the patience of God. They don't know any of that. And so these angels, God bless their hearts. They, they get to peer in. They get to look at us from above or wherever they are. And they're seeing us in, like, in all of our 
non-glory, right? They see us struggling to, to read our Bibles. They see us stumbling along, prone to wonder, as the hymn says. They see us, uh, they're amazed at us, even as the least of us knows firsthand all the things that they'll never know. We get to taste pardoning mercy. We get to actually be recipients of the adoptive love of God. We're the beneficiaries of the cleansing blood of Jesus. We have fellowship with the living God, and we get to call him Father. And so here's what Peter is pausing to, to give us an inkling of. He's pressing us to see the enormity of the gospel privilege that we have, so we never take them for granted. All right, one more thing that I see here in this text, and then we'll be done. Here's the last thing Peter is, is encouraging us to see. Through Scripture, God serves. Through Scripture, God is serving us. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. What Peter is saying is that God is, God, that God is moved to serve people in the gospel who didn't even exist yet. And those people are me, people like you and me, right? To, to speak of a time when God would rescue us through the person and the work of Jesus. And the people, and, the, and Peter is writing to this people who are wondering, does God even care? Why? Because they're going through tough times. They're going through hard times. They, they, don't even, they don't even know if God is even present and able to help them. They're questioning whether God is even there. And Peter says, hey, hey, don't fear, don't fret. God is helping you and has been helping you before you even existed. He was moving these prophets to serve you before you even took a breath. So that when you finally read of the prophets who wrote of the Messiah coming to save you, you know it was Jesus. How do you know it was Jesus? Because it's written down. And you're on the other side of the cross in the resurrection. God's plan all along was to serve us through the laying down of his life, through the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus himself says, I've not come to serve, but to give my life as a ransom for many. And what Peter is saying is these prophets are serving us because God is serving us. And he serves us by cataloging these specific things to increase our faith. You know, one of the most powerful pictures that we have of God serving us is, is in the upper room. Jesus, uh, on the night when he was betrayed, had a Passover meal with his closest disciples. They go to the upper room. There's no one there but them. There's no servant there to serve them, to wash their feet. And so Jesus, after the meal, uh, decides to take off his outer clothes. He's probably in whatever form of underwear he has. He takes a towel and wraps it around his waist, and then he goes and fills a basin with water, and he goes, and with each disciple, he goes and wash, he, goes, he washes their dirty, dirty man feet, like nasty, right? Like they, they, open-toed shoes, they don't have concrete sidewalks and paved asphalt streets like we do. They're walking on the dust of the road, mud puddles. Uh, they're stomping, they're, you're stepping in uh, the dung left from animals, not, uh, not uh, intending to do it. It was just everywhere. This is an agri uh, agricultural society, right? And so that stuff is everywhere. And that stuff is going to be on their feet. And so the tradition of the Jews was when you come in someone's house, you get your feet washed by a servant, by a slave. They didn't have that. So what does Jesus do? He stoops down, and with water in his own hands, he watches the, washes their dirty, nasty, dung-filled, man-feet toes like yuck. Could you think of anything that's more demeaning? And he's cleaning their feet. And of course, this is a picture of the ultimate cleansing Jesus provides us as he goes to the cross. And so here's the, here's the message for us, I think, just putting this all together. 
You might be going through hard times. You might be suffering in, in, in some sense. And I don't know what that is. I guess in a sense, we're all kind of suffering, right? This has been uh, five months of suffering through the coronavirus. It's been a couple months of suffering through racial tensions in our, in our country. And there's, there's, there's so much right now that's dividing us. But the opportunity for us as people of God is for us to be united in our diversity through the person of Jesus, right? And so hard times and trials shouldn't divide us. They should unite us because we are united in the person and the work of Jesus. And, and, and he shows us that right here. Particularly, he asks us this question, does God care? Does God care about the difficulties of life that we experience in this life? And of course, the answer is, is yes. He cared about you when he moved the prophets to proclaim a future day when God would send his son to save you. He cared about you when he moved the New Testament writers to recall the son of God who gave up his life and died your death. And he rose again to call you to himself. Perhaps more specifically, God cares for you and serves you when he moves on me or Nick or Saji or any person that graces the, the, this pulpit here to write a sermon to encourage you, don't give up. I know life is hard. God cares. He's serving you. He serves you through his word. He serves you by his spirit. He serves you in the person and work of Jesus. The God of the universe is here to serve you. Now, whether you believe that or not, I can't control that, but I can encourage you with this. God is chasing every one of us and telling us in clear terms, I'm not just here to help you. I'm here to save you. You believe that? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, for the depth of it, and for how it uh, encourages us, how it exhorts us, how it picks us up from the difficulties of our lives. And uh, Lord, we we do hear these words from your spirit today that sometimes it's right for us to pause and to actually give thought to how great a salvation you have wrought for us. Jesus, you deserve our glory and our praise. There's no one more worthy than you of honor and glory. Thank you, Jesus, that you chose to enter our world wear our clothes, speak our language, walk our roads, and submit yourself to the humility of the cross, and you did it for us. And God, we pray that you'd make us fit for that salvation. God, make it such that we would yearn like the, like the angels, peering in, not from the outside. God, you've given us a privilege to be on the inside participants in this great salvation that you've wrought for us. So we receive it, Lord God. And for those who have not yet received it, Lord, I would pray that you would continue to pursue them, call them to yourself, and make Jesus known. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.